Pat. It's not about labeling yourself as vegan or vegetarian, but it's, it's being informed, getting the information, understanding that information and understanding that a healthy diet is about choosing to build all of your meals or most of them from the foods that are consistently shown to benefit human health. And what are the foods that are consistently shown to benefit human health? Fruits, vegetables, whole grains, beans, legumes, peas, lentils, chickpeas, nuts, seeds, and maybe a little bit of extra virgin olive oil. The studies on meat consumption don't show benefit. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Eat Green, Make Green podcast. This is Pat McCauley, as always. My guest this week is the amazing Dr. Alan Desmond. I've followed Dr. Alan's work for many years, so super excited to have him on and hear all his brilliance in person. Uh, For those that don't know, Dr. Alan is a UK-based gastroenterologist. He's a speaker. He's an author. Uh, His new book, The Plant-Based Diet Revolution, launches in the U.S. on Tuesday. So this is going to be released Sunday uh, night in the U.S., um, May 16th. His book is going to launch Tuesday the 18th here. You can get it on Amazon um, and throughout bookstores uh, throughout the U.S. Um, So we talk about how his fascination with young people being hospitalized Uh, led him to specialize in gastroenterology, Um, how seeking answers for his patients and seeing the incredible results of a whole food plant-based diet um, on his patients led him to speaking and writing his new book, Um, why the food that people consume in the U.S. is the number one cause of disease and disability, why the evidence on what we should be eating is crystal clear, The many myths around protein and other nutrients when it comes to a whole food plant-based diet, why there are limitless ways to go about a whole food plant-based diet, all about our gut microbiome and how our diet impacts it, why eating healthy is about eating foods that are consistently shown to benefit human health, Uh, the connections between COVID food production and human health. Um, and all about his new book and where you can get his new book, as I just mentioned. Um, Dr. Allen's incredible, extremely knowledgeable, um, and this is definitely an episode like share with a loved one, share with somebody who's struggling with their health, uh, because there is just so much powerful information uh, that Dr. Allen delivers. Again, check out his book. It's the first link in the description in the show notes. Follow him on Instagram and elsewhere. Um, and all the amazing work he's doing. Without further ado, the amazing Dr. Alan Desmond. All right, Dr. Alan, official welcome. Um, I'm super pumped to uh, connect with you. And as I was saying just before this, I've followed you for... Uh, many years now, I've heard you on, um, I heard you recently on, on Spartan Up, actually, with, with Joe DeSena. I think he came on my podcast right around that same time, so I was listening to a bunch of Spartan podcasts and heard you on there. And, yeah, Joe um, DeSena's one tough vegan, I gotta tell you. <laughs> he, yeah. he is one tough plan eater, 100%, yeah. 
Um, but uh, yeah, I, I've been following you and love what you're doing. So official, official welcome from uh, the UK, correct? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm Irish. I'm from uh, Blarney in County Cork, but uh, moved over to the UK about 10 years ago now. Um, fell in love with an English girl, so I had to move over, you know, you know how that story goes. <laughs> um, but it's really, really nice to join you in the Boston area. Um, as we talked about before, as a med student, I would spend my summers um, in Boston or down on the Cape, uh, Nantucket, Hyannis. Um, worked at, as a bus boy at the Black Cat there at Hyannisport for a summer. So I have really, really fond memories of that part of the world. So great to connect with you, Pat. Yeah, thank you. And I'm sure your, I'm sure your diet was uh, very similar back then <laughs> to, to well, what it I, is I would, now, right? <laughs> I tell you, I, w- I was just a student. I was just like a student um, eating a student diet. But I remember actually now that you mention it, when I, uh, I mean, I went to medical school at University College Cork, which was like, you know, the main university in the city I grew up in, basically. So I didn't have to leave home to go to university. So I had all the benefits of home cooking and home laundry and all that kind of stuff when I was in university, which probably saved my life, to be quite honest, you know. But I remember when I went to spend my first student summer living in Boston, and I went with like a bunch of friends and we were just living in like a terrible, cheap student apartment. It was just, it was just grimy, Pat, like really grimy, as bad as you can imagine, okay? Bunch of Irish kids, first summer away from home. But I remember going to do my first, clo- my first um, food shop. And at home, growing up, I mean, my younger sister was vegan. She would eat like a healthy, whole food, plant-based diet, even before anybody knew what that was. Um, we had a great emphasis on vegetables and fresh food. There was always a big fruit bowl on the kitchen table, so you could grab some fruit as you went by. And I, I, I distinctly remember my first shopping trip. I was getting like five bucks an hour. What was I doing? I think I was painting houses at that stage, getting paid in cash. Don't tell the IRS if they're listening. But I, I remember going into Star Market uh, out in Cleveland Circle, which is near where we were, where we were living, and going to do my first food shop. And of course, I, I got a bunch of apples and oranges and fresh fruit. And I'm not joking. I got to the till and I ended up putting the fruit back because it was too expensive. And that kind of gave me an insight even then into what was going on with the food system and agriculture and subsidies, etc., in the US, because it was a lot cheaper for me to buy Wonder Bread and you know cheese slices or i remember the product exactly star market um, dairy food slices i don't think it was technically could be labeled cheese you know but you could buy cheap nasty calories on below minimum but if you tried to go into that same supermarket and buy leafy greens and whole grains and fruits and vegetables it, it quickly became really really expensive yeah, for, for sure. And is that different in Ireland? Do they not subsidize meat and dairy in Ireland like they do here? Well, they do. But it, see, it genuinely seems to me that healthy options are more affordable on this side of the Atlantic. Right. Yeah. So during that time, were you on a path to becoming um, a doctor or when did all that kind of take place? Yeah, of course. So I, I um, entered medical school in 1995, and it takes a long time to become a doctor, six years of medical school. And then 
So I graduated med school in 2001, and then you start doing your internship. And you basically, you live in the hospital, you work in 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 hours. You're doing these 36 hour shifts with no protected sleep. You can be, you know, at a cardiac arrest, then breaking bad news to somebody about a difficult diagnosis, or you're the first person called when the, when the uh, patient is coding it, uh, at the weekend. So, you know, and at the same time, you can be find yourself doing very banal work, like trying to find that lab report or that x-ray or that piece of paper that's needed for the ward round. So a very, very difficult and stressful period of my life, but similar for any young doctor. I mean, that's a really, really, it's a crucible, you know, and, and I think it's improved now, thank goodness. I think our young doctors are treated a lot better now than they were 20 years ago or 18, 19 years ago. But it was around that time, Pat, that I was deciding that I wanted to work as a hospital doctor long-term. I wanted to be what in the US would be called an internist. So a specialist in internal medicine, treating people who are sick enough to be in the hospital. And I was rotating between different specialties, you know, care of the elderly, orthopedics, urology, um, renal medicine, nephrology. And then I had my first rotation in gastroenterology. And it straight away really got me interested. And I remember one of the things that got me interested was when you're a doctor, you know, in your early 20s, you're not long out of medical school. Most of the people that you meet in the hospital to you seem like they're old. They're in their 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. They, they seem like old men and old ladies. And in some way, it kind of makes sense to you as an up and coming professional that all these elderly folk are in the hospital. But on the gastroenterology ward, I met these, this different kind of patient, these young men and women in their 20s and 30s who were in their prime. They were you know, newly married or in university or in their first job, etc., in their very productive years. And here they were hospitalized as an inpatient with conditions like Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis. These conditions whereby your gut lining is severely inflamed, causing symptoms like abdominal pain, malabsorption, weight loss, constant need to use the bathroom, blood in your stools, very difficult symptoms. In fact, most people with these conditions describe their health as poor. And these are conditions that we manage with powerful immune suppressive medications and surgery to remove the diseased part of the gut in many cases. So why were these young people who should be healthy in the hospital? It just didn't make sense to me. And treating people with these conditions, with these inflammatory bowel diseases, and recognizing just how much we could improve their quality of life if we could get the diagnosis right and get the medication right is what really attracted me into gastroenterology and gut health as a career. And it would take me another, maybe another eight or nine years to complete my specialist training and become the attending and become the gastroenterologist. But even back then in 2003, 2004, it struck me 
And there was this one young kid, I, I tell the story in my book, actually, I, I can still remember it. We, I remember which bed in which ward this kid was on. So it obviously made an impression on me. A 19-year-old man hospitalized with Crohn's disease. It, he's just had the diagnosis. He's been admitted to hospital, severe abdominal pain and raised inflammatory markers. And we find out that a section of his small bowel is inflamed badly. So it's like two or three days into his admission. He's been on high dose steroid medications to tamp down the inflammation and his appetite is coming back. We're going to start him on another immune suppressive drug the next day. So things are going well from our perspective and his appetite is coming back and he feels like eating again. So we're on the ward round with my boss and the kid asks us, what should I eat? And what he was asking us, Pat, was, are there any foods that I should eat or avoid that are, help, are going to help to improve my symptoms and my prognosis. Because we just explained to him about inflammation, medication, surgery, immune suppressants. This is stuff that we're going to do to make him better. And he's asking us, what can I do to make me better? How can I be part of this process? And the answer that my boss gave him then, 18 years ago, was it doesn't matter. Eat what you feel like. Calories are just calories, and you need calories to heal. Now, at the time, I was surprised. The young man was surprised. His mom, who was at the bedside to support him, was surprised. But really, that reflected the thinking at the time. Throughout my career, as I determined that I would become a consultant gastroenterologist, and certainly by the point I became a consultant gastroenterologist in 2012, I felt that as a doctor taking care of patients with gut health problems, it was my responsibility to have evidence-based answers to that question. What should I eat? And the papers and the research and the intervention studies that I read and studied in the same papers, or excuse me, the same um, uh, medical journals where we learn about the latest drug or the latest intervention, also have so many studies about the impact of diet on gut health and overall health. And it shouldn't surprise anybody really to know that as a gastroenterologist, I talk to my patients about food all the time. And I work with a team of amazing dietitians who help our patients to get the best possible outcomes alongside medication, alongside surgery. And honestly, Pat, whenever you look at these common digestive health problems, that we regard as just normal because they're so common. No matter what condition you're looking at, the best dietary advice that we can give our patients is pretty simple. Unprocess your food. Get away from the highly processed junk food that makes up 60% of calories consumed in the US right now. Number one. And number two, choose plant-derived sources of nutrition over animal-based. And the logical conclusion is a healthy, whole food, plant-based diet. And it was my patients and seeking evidence-based answers for my patients and then seeing the incredible results that my patients were seeing at clinic that made me become an advocate for a healthy, whole food, plant-based diet and leading to public speaking, 
talking to fantastic people like you and helping to use your platform to spread the message. And I appreciate that, but also leading to the book, my and everything else that I do really in, in all of my, I was going to say in all of my spare time, in my precious little spare time, um, just trying to get them, get the message out there, get the education out there. It's so important. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Beautifully said. And like, I'm thinking to my own path as you speak. And that was really my experience of like, nobody ever told me to change what I ate or how I lived. It was just, you know, here's the inhaler, here's the pill, here's the cream. Um, you know, and that's, that, that's the treatment as opposed to addressing what's, what's causing all the problems. Um, on the diet front, was there a certain like uh, piece of information that you, or resource um, for maybe fellow doctors listening that you first got a hold of that led you down the path of like figuring all this out? And are you, I would imagine you are still very much an outlier in terms of this way of thinking as sort of the, it seems so obvious, right? The, what you eat, um, you know, impacts your gut health. Uh, but it isn't obvious, I think, for so many. So are you an outlier in kind of where did you get that information for other kind of people in the field that might be listening? Well, for, for me, Pat, because I was reading these papers all the time and these papers always attracted me. I would read these papers. I remember in 2004, reading a um, review in one of our leading medical journals for gastroenterology talking about the fact that among patients with a certain gut health condition called ulcerative colitis, we should be telling them to eat less red meat because the more red meat they eat, the more likely they are to have a flare of their disease. And then as a doctor, you read that paper and it leads you on to other papers and then you follow the references and you just follow this line of evidence and it becomes, you know, one thing builds on top of the other and you do get to a tipping point. But when I became a consultant in 2010, 12, and now my name is on the patient's chart and I've got to make sure that I'm working as best I can with that patient for them to get the best possible outcome. So I would, even then, you know, that was nearly 10 years ago now, I would start by talking to my patients saying, look, can you, how many portions of fruit do you eat every day? How many portions of vegetables? How many portions of whole grains? Do you know what a whole grain is? Can I get you to eat more? Do you have dairy? Well, can you quit dairy? Because most humans don't digest dairy very well. And you're already experiencing gut health issues with bloating and abdominal distension. So let's get the dairy out. Do you eat processed meat, bacon and sausages? Did you know that those foods cause unfavorable changes in your gut microbiome and seriously increase the risk of colorectal cancer? And the reason you're here at my clinic is because you have a family history of colorectal cancer. So let's do that. Let's get rid of the red meat. It's a carcinogen. You know, and so I was talking to my patients about this all the time, but it wasn't until about 2017 um, that I was introduced through a friend. It's a very circuitous story, but a good friend of mine um, who I happened to be having a telephone conversation with, um, a guy called Andy Ramage, one of the co-founders of One Year No Beer, if you're familiar with that online community. I am. So I was, so I was talking to Andy on the phone, and I was actually at a, a gastroenterology conference in Leuven in Belgium, which was like this big European-wide conference on gastroenterology that I'd been waiting to go to for many years. And during the conference, I had asked a question during the keynote, um, as to why more gastroenterologists were not calling for research into the role of diet in treating serious gastrointestinal problems. Because the evidence very firmly 
tells me that I should be advising my patients to move towards a whole food plant-based diet. And every single patient asks us for help on the diet aspect. So why aren't we calling for research on that? And funnily enough, uh, my good friend Andy had just gotten back from a rich roll retreat in Ireland, which I hadn't been able to go to because of commitments at the hospital. And he had met a doctor there who was on the same page as me. He introduced me to that doctor. That doctor said, hey, do you know Dr. Shireen Kazam in London? She's a hematologist. She's organizing the UK's first ever conference on plant-based medicine and plant-based health. You should contact her. I'm sure she would love to have you at the conference. She invited me to speak at the conference. I said, yes. I found out later I was the first person who said yes. So it gave her the confidence to keep organizing the conference. And it was when I went to that conference, um, Pat, that I met other doctors, GPs, cardiologists, public health experts, endocrinologists who were, uh, who were reading the same papers as I was reading and wanted to make a difference for their patients. We ended up forming um, a UK um, organization called Plant-Based Health Professionals UK. Um, I'm still an ambassador for that organization. And it was really connecting with other doctors who were familiar with the science gave me the confidence to be more forthright with my patients. Um, in terms of other health professionals, I mean, there's wonderful resources. If you Google plant-based health professionals UK or in the US, the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine, or if you're in Australia, Doctors for Nutrition, or if you're in Ireland, Plant-Based Doctors Ireland. The community is there. The network is there. The resources are there. Dr. Michael Greger's books are wonderful because not only do they tell you about the science, they give you the references and the papers. So whatever your specialty in, in, in general medicine, you can go and get all those papers yourself and read them and make your own decision. You don't have to trust me or the references in my book or Dr. Greger or the references in his book. I would encourage any health profession or anyone who's involved in healthcare to go and seek out the papers and the evidence on the role of diet in the condition that you spend your days treating. And it shouldn't surprise us that food is so important because in the US right now, the food that people consume is the number one cause of disease and disability. The standard Western diet in which the US is the world leader and perhaps the originator, this high meat, high dairy, high processed food, high junk food, low in fruit, vegetables, beans, legumes, nuts and seeds, low in fiber, low in plants, is responsible for more healthy years lost than any other human behavior. In the UK right now where I work, dietary factors alone account for more healthy years lost than alcohol and drug use combined or lack of exercise. It's crazy. So if you're a doctor or a health professional, and if you talk to your patients about, hey, maybe you need to lose a few pounds, maybe you need to exercise more, maybe you need to quit smoking, maybe you need to reduce your alcohol use, you, if you're talking to your patients about those lifestyle choices, you have got to talk to them about food. Yeah, absolutely. A hundred percent. So 
How do you answer when a patient inevitably asks you, um, you know, about protein and about being deficient in certain nutrients and things like that and all sort of the um, common misconceptions around eating a whole food plant-based diet? How do you answer those questions? Well, the first thing I point out to patients and fellow health professionals is that the concept of a whole food plant-based diet being a really healthy way to eat is no longer controversial. I am no longer an outlier. In 2019, the uh, Lancet Medical Journal, which is like the National Geographic of medical journals, it's like our leading, one of our most uh, prominent medical journals, um, published the report of 38 global experts that they had handpicked from institutions like Harvard, University of Oxford, University of London to go out and answer the same question that that 19-year-old man asked me on the ward 18 years ago. And the same question that my patients ask me all the time, what should we eat? Not just patients, not just you and me, Pat, but everybody on earth. What's a blueprint for a healthy diet? And they looked at decades of evidence and they came up with what they called the Eat Lancet Report or the Planetary Health Plate. And what they recommended, this blueprint for optimal human nutrition for everybody in the planet, including the 800 million people who are living with food poverty and do not get enough calories, including the three and a half billion people whose health is being devastated by too much of the wrong foods. What was their blueprint for a healthy diet? It is a whole food plant-based diet. They said that half of our food should be fruits and vegetables, 25% should be whole grains, and the remainder should be made up of especially protein-rich plant foods like legumes and beans and nuts and seeds and lentils with some small amount of added sugars and a small amount of healthy plant-based oils, polyunsaturated oils like ex-virgin olive oil. Having looked at the evidence, they were very, very clear that animal products should be regarded as optional and plants always remain the healthier choice. And if you do live in a country where you have unlimited food options, like many people are fortunate enough to do, if you decide to consume animal products, then you should consume small amounts. For example, you know, an ounce of chicken or fish each day, an egg every other day, seven grams of red meat per day, which is the equivalent of having one serving of red meat every two weeks or so. Because if you consume more animal products than that, you are moving outside what they called the zone of safety. You're into the area where these foods are going to be harming your health rather than improving your health. And when they looked at the evidence and the paper that they published was extraordinary, they estimated that if they could wave a magic wand and get everybody on earth to eat like this and get the resources and get the food to people and get the education to people and change the food system, that it would prevent almost 12 million preventable deaths per year, plus hundreds of millions of fewer stents, bypasses, courses of chemotherapy, statin medications, um, you know, insulin prescriptions, hours on dialysis. It would save literally hundreds of billions of dollars in healthcare costs. Not only did the Eat Lancet Commission recommend a whole food plant-based diet, but in 2021, 
We now know that a healthy plant-based diet is endorsed as a healthy choice by the British Dietetic Association, the American Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, the American Cancer Society, the World Health Organization. Last year, Pat, in 2020, August 2020, in the middle of this pandemic, the American Medical Association, who were at that time finalizing the new edition of the Dietary Guidelines for Americans. And in that letter, they asked the USDA to stop making meat and dairy obligatory food groups within the dietary guidelines for Americans. And the reason the American Medical Association made that request, and their letter was very clear, and I'm, I'm, I'm quoting here, I may be slightly misquoting, but to best my recollection, the phrase they used was that meat and dairy are not necessary in all diets. They're not necessary, Pat. You don't need them. And not only that, they pointed out that these foods are strongly linked to increased risks of heart disease, type 2 diabetes, and numerous cancers, including prostate cancer. Conditions with dis which disproportionately affect minority populations in the, in the US. And yet the US dietary guidelines came out a few months later, and guess what? Red meat all over the place. Even the healthy vegetarian diet that they describe in the US Dietary Guidelines contains three servings of dairy per day. Can you guess why? Because the Dietary Guidelines for Americans are written by the US Department of Agriculture, an organization that was set up to promote the interests of US agriculture, whose number one goal is to reduce barriers to profitability for US agriculture. So although many of the health professionals who were involved in helping to write the dietary guidelines for Americans are probably well-intentioned, you've just got to remember that there's a huge conflict there. Now, when people ask me about protein and calcium and all those other things, so we can get into protein in a minute if you'd like, I just have to put that up front. Okay, I've got to say that up front, that I am not an outlier. The second thing I would say is this concept that a whole food plant-based diet is um, deficient is it, you're getting it, well, to use an American phrase, you're getting an ass backwards, right? You're absolutely wrong because the reason all of these professional organizations recommend a whole food plant-based diet is because by eating a whole food plant-based diet, you are correcting the multiple dietary deficiencies that mean that the standard Western diet is the number one driver of disease in the United States. So by switching to fruits and vegetables and whole grains and legumes and bean burritos instead of beef burritos and chickpea pot pie instead of chicken pot pie, you are now consuming more folate, more fiber, more vitamins A, C, E, thymine, riboflavin, more healthy oils, more copper, more magnesium. Yes, more iron than people who eat meat and dairy. I mean, researchers know what a healthy diet looks like. You can go to any country in the world and you can look at what everybody's eating and you can decide who is eating a healthy diet. And research tells us that compared to meat eaters, vegetarians are three times more likely to make the grade for a healthy diet. Compared to meat eaters, people who just identify as vegan may be 32 times more likely to have a healthy diet. So we can get into the deficiencies if you like, and we can talk about them, but this concept that a whole food plant-based diet is somehow unhealthy 
are deficient. It, it just, it, once you look at the science, it just doesn't hold up. Yeah, I, I absolutely love it. Yeah, I would, if we can, real quick, just because it is quite obviously uh, the biggest question asked, and I think the biggest barrier to people, uh, but your answer to the protein question, real quick, if you would. Okay, well, look, number one, you know, imaginary person who just asked that question, I'm glad you asked. Because choosing to get your protein from plants instead of meat and other animal products may be one of the healthiest decisions you will ever make. By choosing to get your protein from plants instead of from animals, you are reducing your risk of inflammatory bowel disease and heart disease and diabetes and bowel cancer and other chronic diseases. You are going to have a longer and healthier life. Every time you choose to have plant protein instead of animal protein, you are reducing your risk of dying prematurely. So it's a good thing. The average person needs about 0.7 kilogram, or grams per kilo of protein per, excuse me, I've said that badly, 0.7 grams of protein per kilogram body weight per day. So if you weigh 80 kilos, which is about the average size of, an, of a British male, you need about 55 to 60 grams of protein per day. If you are eating a whole food plant-based diet, and you are following the principles that we've just been discussing or eating meals like the meals in my book, things like porridge, parsnip and lentil soup, um, aubergine harissa and spinach stew, all these lovely plant-based meals that you and I adore, right? You will be smashing between 70 and 100 grams of protein per day without even thinking about it, without even reaching for that protein shake. And the reason for that is because all plants contain protein. I'm not recommending, Pat, that you only eat black beans tomorrow, okay? But if you decided you were only going to eat black beans tomorrow and you consumed 2,000 calories of black beans, you'd get about 100 grams of protein, far more than you need. And if, I mean, if you're a, a high-performance athlete, that'll be just enough. And you've just gotten it from beans. And when we're eating a varied whole food plant-based diet, things like legumes and tempeh and sourdough bread and oats and black beans and nuts and chickpeas, these are our staples. These are the foods that we, we build our meals around and they're absolutely packed with protein. And you know, there's this other myth around protein and plant-based diets, which comes up all the time. And I've heard doctors and dietitians say this so many times. You've heard this, right? The complete protein concept. So when we talk about protein in our diet, what we're really talking about, Pat, is amino acids. So these are the building blocks of protein. And why do we need protein? Well, our bodies are 15% protein. This is the stuff that we're built out of. Our bodies need to synthesize proteins for repair and growth all the time. It's part of what we're built out of, okay? Um, tendons, cartilage, connective tissue, hormones, enzymes, protein is needed. But what's really needed is amino acids. There are 20 different amino acids. Um, nine of them are referred to as essential amino acids because humans can't synthesize them. We have to get them from food. So these are amino acids like um, leucine, isoleucine, valine, for any of the protein nerds out there who've gone way deep down the rabbit hole. All of those 11 amino acids, in fact, all, excuse, all of those nine essential amino acids and all 20 amino acids, including the essential amino acids, are found in 
all plant foods in varying proportions. Several plants like soya, quinoa, and buckwheat are particularly rich in the nine essential amino acids and are referred to as complete proteins. But if you are consuming plants in variety, you will get more than you need of all nine essential amino acids. So rather than looking at a, as a piece of food on your plate and saying, oh, that's a complete protein, look at your entire diet and say, yes, this is a complete diet because it's correcting the, the major dietary deficiencies that are drivers of disease in high-income countries now. And yes, it's giving me enough protein. And yes, it's giving me all the amino acids that my body needs to build polypeptides, then build protein. And not only that, I am getting those proteins from such a healthy source. I am now getting my protein wrapped up with fiber and phytonutrients and antioxidants that help to keep my body healthy and slow the damage that our cells experience every day. I am no longer getting my protein in a package where it comes wrapped up with cholesterol and saturated fat and polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons and heterocyclic amines and heme iron and sodium nitrate and carnitine and all of these substances that we get from animal products that are along for the ride with the protein, which happen to be pro-inflammatory pro-oxidative and carcinogenic. Best, best answer I've ever got right there. <laughs> so how do you... I appreciate that. How do you, how do you talk um, about sort of the idea that, you know, one I get all the time when people ask questions to me is the idea that, you know, everybody's different. And this idea that because I'm from... I, you know, my ancestors are from Eastern Europe and my blood type is O negative and I tried, you know, a plant focused diet. It didn't work for me. didn't feel good. Um, like, what do you, what do you say to that idea that like everybody is different? Like I hear that all the time. And even in like the holistic wellness space, like everybody's different and uh, the blood type diet and all this stuff, how do you kind of Talk about no, that. well, look, the blood type diet is just quackery. Please don't spend time getting someone to tell you what <laughs> blood type you are and then give me a list of foods that you should eat according to your blood type, okay? It's on, there's no basis for that. Similarly, um, food tolerance tests based on blood tests where you get a blood test and they say, oh, here's a list of foods that you shouldn't eat because you've got immune globulin G against these foods. It's, you know, the, those immune-based tests, which you can get at the drugstore, don't do them. They're, they're, they're ridiculous. Okay. They don't help. If they worked, Pat, it would be amazing. They would save me so much time at my clinic, right? If I could just do a blood test and give people a list of, of foods they should eat, it would be amazing. Um, but the thing I would say to that, Pat, is that within this blueprint of a healthy whole food plant-based diet, there is infinite variety. There's infinite diversity. I mean, one kind of useful um, example to, that we could give regarding that is if we look at the research around the blue zones, okay, you're familiar with this concept, um, the healthiest, longest lived populations in the world, as described by Dan Butner and his team of researchers beginning 20 years ago. And they, they published incredible data on these, you know, the Okinawans, the, um, the Seventh-day Adventists of Loma Linda, there was people in Icaria, Greece, the, um, there was a population in Costa Rica, and then it was Corsica, wasn't it? I think that's the five. Have I forgotten anyone? But anyway, so these five geographically diverse, 
ethnically diverse, culturally diverse populations scattered all around the world, the longest lived healthiest people on the planet, and they're all eating a healthy whole food, completely or predominantly plant-based diet. But the Seventh-day Adventist healthy whole food plant-based diet looks a whole lot different to the Okinawan whole food plant-based diet. If you see these meals next to each other, they look completely different. You know, the, the, um, the Adventist diet might have a lot of grains and chickpeas and corn, etc., and, you know, leafy greens and veggies that'd be familiar to any American. And then the Okinawan diet is, you know, there's seaweed and there's rice and there's lots of different plants and there's fermented foods and there's cabbage. And, you know, they look completely different, but they've got a lot of common characteristics. Whole grains, legumes, energy, not so much. Okay, so not energy dense, but nutrient dense. And Basically, I mean, for me, you can do this whole food plant-based diet any way you like. If you go on to, I mean, you know, very kind of you to interview me this week when my book is launching in the US this month, which is awesome. I'm, I'm really pleased that it is. But we've got 80 simple, healthy, delicious whole food plant-based recipes in there. But if they don't float your boat, just get on Google and type in, healthy plant-based recipe or healthy vegan recipe. When I did this the other day, I think I got 930 million hits, Pat. So wow. the, there, there are healthy plant-based recipes out there to suit every person, every food culture, every preference, and just find your own way. You don't have to overhaul your diet so it's beyond recognition to you. If you like having breakfast cereal and you like having a sandwich for lunch, and if you like having lasagna or a burrito or, you know, or any of these foods or spaghetti and meatballs or any of these foods, whatever your food culture is, if you like sushi or, or you know, um, if you're more of an Irish guy and you like having calcanin or cabbage and potatoes or whatever, you can do this plant-based. It's really, it's not that hard. So, um, you know, experiment, find foods that seem very familiar to you that have been turned into a healthy plant-based version and just, yeah, go explore. I love it. I love it. I'd love to ask you about, this is kind of another hot health topic that has been hot the past few years, but the idea of the microbiome and, you know, probiotics and good bacteria and all this stuff, how does that all correlate um, and fit into the picture of, you know, eating a plant-based diet? Pat, it's absolutely crucial. It is absolutely crucial. And this is a thread that runs through my clinical practice, my public speaking, and my book. The human gut microbiome. I was very lucky. You know, I talked earlier about, you know, 18 years ago when I was in my first gastroenterology job. I was very lucky to be under the mentorship of um, people like Professor Fergus Shanahan, uh, Professor Eamon Quigley, who were some of the absolute pioneers globally in gut microbiome research. So I was hearing about this even in the, my very early medical career, even as a medical student, um, around the time that the concept of the human gut microbiome was even emerging as a topic of specialist interest. So for any of your listeners who don't know about the gut microbiome, I've got some really good news for you. You are not alone. 
You might think you're on your own, but you are not on your own. We think of our bodies as being a single entity, but in fact, within our gut, and particularly within our lower bowel, within our large bowel, we are carrying with us hundreds of trillions of microbes, bacteria, viruses, yeasts, archaea. We have 10 times more um, microorganism cells and a hundred more times more gut microbiome genetic material than we can have in the rest of our human body. And while humans have been around for about 200,000 years, the microorganisms, the bugs that live in our gut microbiome are the direct ancestors of the earth's very first living inhabitants. These single cell organisms that emerged on earth between you know, two and three billion years ago. These microorganisms have been with us since the dawn of human evolution. When the first human cell met the other first human cell and they decided to get together and start building a human, there was a microbiome right there with them from the very, very start. So it shouldn't surprise us that the human gut microbiome is intrinsic to human health. It begins to form at birth. We get these bugs from our environment. It helps us digest our first meal. It's crucial to the development of a healthy GI tract, immune system, and body. And in fact, it's so important to our health, Pat, that the human gut microbiome has been described as a control center for human biology. And what we know in the 21st century is that people who eat a varied plant-based diet have a healthier gut microbiome than people who eat meat. So the plant-based gut microbiome gets to digest and ferment a greater variety of plants, more fiber, produces more of these substances called short-chain fatty acids, the most beneficial substance that most people have never heard of. These short-chain fatty acids are produced when our gut digests fiber. We only get fiber from plants. Sure, you can make short-chain fatty acids from animal protein, but it's a much less efficient way to do it. Vegetarians and vegans make more short-chain fatty acids, which is good news because short-chain fatty acids protect the intestinal barrier, help to regulate our immune system, help to control our appetite, help to control our blood sugar. They help to suppress the growth of colon cancer cells. They provide 70% of the energy that the lining cells of our large bowel need to stay healthy. And they come from our microbiome. We don't get them on our diet. They're so important for human health, but they are manufactured by our gut bugs. Also, if you eat a plant-based diet, your gut microbiome produces far lower levels of a postbiotic called secondary bile acids, which is good news. Because secondary bile acids are pro-inflammatory and pro-carcinogenic and promote the growth of colon cancer. If you eat a plant-based diet, your plant-based microbiome loses the ability to metabolize carnitine from meat and choline from eggs, which is good news because your gut microbes turn that stuff into a substance called TMA, which enters your bloodstream, gets turned into TMAO by your liver and increases your risk of heart disease and stroke. So that's why one of the reasons why vegans and vegetarians have much lower rates of heart disease. These are some of the reasons why vegans and vegetarians are less likely to have a healthy body weight, less likely to have type 2 diabetes, less likely to 
develop inflammatory bowel disease, less likely to develop colon cancer. And it's all to do with the wonderful world of the human gut microbiome. That's amazing. And you mentioned earlier, you, I think you used the term like safety zone. Mm. To somebody trying to like switch over to, to more plants, like maybe what does the science say in your opinion and what is your opinion on it in terms of like, is it 5% of the diet that is animal products that you can kind of deal with and is okay? Is it smaller? Is it bigger? How do you kind of advise on that front? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. I mean, it, I mean, genuinely, it's not, I mean, for me, Pat, it's not about labeling yourself as vegan or vegetarian, but it's, it's being informed, getting the information, understanding that information and understanding that a healthy diet is about choosing to build all of your meals or most of them from the foods that are consistently shown to benefit human health. And what are the foods that are consistently shown to benefit human health? Fruits, vegetables, whole grains, beans, legumes, peas, lentils, chickpeas, nuts, seeds, and maybe a little bit of extra virgin olive oil. The studies on meat consumption don't show benefit. There was a study published here in the UK just a couple of months ago um, from a really um, thorough and well-respected um, research group based in Oxford at the UK Biobank, okay? So they followed half a million adult volunteers for almost a decade. Half a million. There's only 44 million adults in the UK. So that's about 180th of the entire adult population. Is that right? 180th is half a million, 180th of... Yeah, it is right. Yeah. So that's 180th <laughs> of the UK population. So one in 80 UK adults took part in this study. That's big data. And it's done by the team at Oxford. In the UK, the health system is pretty centralized. The NHS is like one big giant system. So they've got access to the central database, the NHS central database. And so they tracked health outcomes over about 10 years. And they looked at the 25 most common reasons to be admitted to hospital. So heart attack, stroke, um, diverticulitis, duodenitis, gallbladder problems, type 2 diabetes, the 25 top reasons to be admitted to hospital. In 24 out of 25 conditions, eating meat either had zero health benefits or increased your risk. So to anyone who thinks that meat is necessary to be healthy, that's some pretty startling information. 24 out of 25, it either had zero benefit or increased your risk. Eating 90 grams of chicken per day, that's three ounces of chicken per day, increased your risk of having gallbladder problems or duodenitis or stomach ulcers by about 56%. So these foods which we've been told are healthy for years and years and years and years don't seem to be that healthy. By comparison, when you look at any study looking at the health impact of consuming more of the foods that every recipe in my book is built out of, you will see that each of those foods individually benefits your health and reduces your risk of chronic disease. But that being said, Pat, the benefits of eating more plants should be available to everybody. 
even making small changes can have really measurable effects on your health. You asked earlier about the whole protein question and where do you get your protein? Um, last year, um, um, Harvard published a paper where they'd followed 700,000 adults for three decades in countries all around the world, high-income countries, low-income countries, countries where people don't get enough food, countries where people have too much food. And they found that, yes, it is important to consume enough protein, and we covered that earlier, you will get enough protein on your healthy, whole food, plant-based diet. But their second key finding was that the choice of protein is crucial. And it just, you know, they followed 700,000 adults for 30 years. During that 30 years, for every 3% increase in energy from plant protein, the volunteers who took part in that study were 5% less likely to die by the end of the study. So that's just a tiny change. That could be the difference between substituting one animal product per day with a plant product. That could be the difference between substituting a bean burger each day instead of a beef burger each day. And they can, they can have real and definite benefits um, in terms of your health and longevity. So if you are someone who has heard all the science and finds it absolutely compelling, but still doesn't think they could go vegan or go vegetarian, that's cool, I get it, but start making steps towards this way of eating because I guarantee you'll feel better, you'll feel happier, you feel healthier. And the science tells us you'll have a happier and healthier life. Right, yeah, I like to say to start kind of treating animal products like the piece of cake or like the alcohol or like these things that you know are not supposed to be your daily staples to remain healthy. Absolutely. I remember years ago as a med student, um, spending time working, you know, volunteering at a rural hospital in West Africa, in Ghana, in the Brong Ahafo region. And, you know, being among these people who are living in desperate poverty, to be quite honest, but these were people who were still eating a very, very traditional diet. And we know that in rural Africa, the, although they, I mean, don't get me wrong, they have their own health challenges, okay, for sure. But we also know that heart disease, you know, precancerous bowel polyps, diverticular disease, colorectal cancer, those diseases just don't happen. And we know that food is so important um, in explaining why those diseases don't happen. But what I, would, what I noticed there as a student, um, and, you know, the science bears this out, is that the meal would be built from plants and that the animal product would be used very, very sparsely indeed. Often it was just a teaspoon of sauce or gravy that was made from a meat product that was used to flavor the dish. Uh, but somehow in high-income countries like the US and the UK now, we have flipped our diets completely to the point where we are consuming more meat per person than has ever been consumed by any person in the history of humanity. In the US right now, the US hit, hit peak meat a couple of years ago, Pat, over 100 kilograms of meat per person per year. Ridiculous amounts of meat. And we need to push back against that. It's so important, not, not only for our individual health, not just for our individual health, but for the health of the planet and the health of our children and the health of their children. You know, the, the way that our food and all this meat is produced through animal agriculture 
is something that up to last year I generally didn't mention. It isn't the reason that I came to recommend the whole food plant-based diet. We've already talked about that in detail. And I always thought that if I discussed it, even being aware of the research and being a scientist and a doctor, knowing how to read a research paper and knowing about the impact that animal agriculture has on our planet, I still didn't like to mention it because I thought it would give people the impression that I was coming at this with another agenda other than human health and that they might not listen to my message for that reason. However, in the spring of 2020, that changed for me because coronavirus arrived and swept the planet, okay? And very early on in that pandemic, we saw the lessons coming out of China, we saw the data coming out of New York, when New York was the epicenter of the epicenter in April of last year. We saw it in the UK, but in the spring of last year, you know, over a couple of months, we had 42,000 people admitted to hospital coronavirus. I gave up my practice as a gastroenterologist and worked on the front line in full PPE, caring for these patients in isolation rooms when their family couldn't visit them. I put people on morphine infusions because we couldn't save them. And during that time period, it was incredibly obvious from the data and from my own experience was that these diseases that are driven by a standard Western diet, the high blood pressure, the high cholesterol, the heart disease, the type two diabetes, the living with obesity. I mean, we'd known for decades that these conditions were taking years off of our lifespan and making our health span shorter. But during the pandemic, it was incredibly obvious that when this virus infects you, if you have one of those conditions, you're in big trouble and you're more likely to be hospitalized and you're more likely to be ventilated and you're more likely to die. And most of the patients I took care of who died had multiple chronic health problems. And it was the same in the US and it was the same all over the world. The, the crux of this though, is that where we think this virus came from, it came from, as far as we know right now, a meat market, a wet market in a country very far away. I've not been a doctor that long, Pat, you know, 18 or 20 years. This isn't the first time I've treated patients in hospital who were dying from a zoonotic pandemic that came out of the animal agriculture system. In 2009, my wife and I were both working as doctors in a hospital, caring for patients with swine flu, which we think came out of um, the pig industry in the Southern United States. In August of last year, the United Nations published a paper called Breaking the Chain of Transmission, How to Prevent the Next Zoonotic Pandemic. And they looked at things that we can each do on an individual basis, governmentally, from an industrial perspective, from a food supply perspective, things that we can do to reduce the risk of a future zoonotic pandemic like coronavirus. And the number one behavior change that they called for is to remove or drastically reduce the amount of animal protein or meat that we consume on a daily basis. Because the incredible amount of meat that we're now consuming means that we have to raise and slaughter tens of billions of animals every year 
simply for the purposes of eating them. And we need to raise so much of them, so many of them, that it requires raising them quickly, cheaply, in cramped, unsanitary conditions in close proximity to humans. These facilities for producing animals to eat are breeding grounds for future pandemics. So the number one thing we can each do is reduce the animal products that we consume. You know, a very, very smart man once said that humans only identify the need for change if they have suffered. If we identify that our habits are causing us pain, that's when we identify the need for positive change. What's been on my mind recently, Pat, is that as we emerge in some countries from this pandemic, we've lost three and a half million loved ones. Hundreds of millions of us have been infected with this disease. We are only beginning to understand the long-term health consequences of that. Our kids couldn't go to school. They've had to learn how to wear masks and socially distance. Our older folks were devastated in the first wave of this pandemic as it swept through care facilities. And then those who survived that first wave in care homes were condemned to another year of solitary confinement, unable to get solace from their family because the risk of getting this infection. So my question is, have we suffered enough? Have we suffered enough in the last 18 months to finally identify the need for change and to each on an individual basis through the food choices we make three or four times a day, start to move towards a plant-based diet? It's going to be really interesting to see the answer to that question in the next six, 12 or 18 months, right? Mm, yeah, Be beautifully said in that. Personally, and I'm sure for you, having been on the front lines and seeing this firsthand, like that has been the most frustrating thing for me over the past year and mm. a half of like, yeah, I'm, I'm all for the mask and the distancing, but can there also be some talk at the same time about taking care of your health? And when I say that you know, like to me, again, again, these things to me are somewhat obvious. It's like, okay, if I have a healthy body and healthy lungs and a properly functioning system, will I do better against a respiratory illness than somebody who is not? And to me, that's very obvious. Yes. And that over this past year and year and a half has been a radical thing to say. And you tend to get attacked when you talk about, you know, the fact that if you can be in a healthy body, your, your chances of, of severe illness from this thing are, are much lower. Um, but it's just been frustrating that there's no talk of that. Instead, it's, you know, it's stay home, it's wear the mask, it's, you know, free crispy no I, I, donuts. I, I, <laughs> yeah i agree with you yeah that was crazy right people getting crispy creams at vaccination centers well look <laughs> yeah. if it got people to go and get vaccinated okay cool i'm i'm, I'm happy but you know giving them crispy cream donuts it just look no judgment okay but yes right. it did seem like mixed messaging to me um I, I genuinely pat i think people have made this connection i think in the last year, people have really started to join the dots between food, food production, and human health. I mean, 
they've got to, right? I mean, we've got to remain hopeful. We have got to remain hopeful. Um, I'm, I'm so, I mean, when I was working on the wards in the midst of the peak of the pandemic here in the UK last spring, um, I was doing three days on, three days off, okay? So we do three days, we're doing 13 hour shifts, then we do three days off. Three days on, three days off, and it was nuts. During my three days off, my wife and kids had gone to live with my in-laws because I didn't want to be coming home off the COVID ward to hug my wife and children. We, we knew nothing about this virus then. So I didn't see my wife and kids for two months. I was just working and sitting at home in a quiet house in a ghost town. But I used those days off to do most of the writing on my book. And initially, I was thinking, is anybody even going to buy books anymore? <laughs> you know, is this even relevant anymore? But as time went by, I realized that it's more relevant than ever. And that's why I'm so pleased um, that more people are talking about this stuff. I'm so pleased that my book is now going to be available in the U.S., and I hope that people will read it and they will talk about it and it will help to reinforce the messaging that, I mean, a lot of the things I just talked about sound pretty depressing, right? Heart disease, colorectal cancer, diverticular disease, Crohn's disease, COVID, pandemics. But really, I mean, uh, the, the bottom line here is that this is a message of hope. This is a message of hope. There is nothing inevitable here. We each have the power to push back just by choosing how we spend our dollars, the foods we choose to purchase, and the meals that we choose to cook. It can make, on an individual basis, it can make an incredibly positive impact on our health, the health of our families, our children's health, and the health of our country and the health of the world. I mean, that sounds like a lofty thing to say, but it is absolutely true. This is a message of hope. There's a healthier way. And it's not that complicated. And bonus, the food is delicious. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I always say it's not, this isn't meant to scare you. It's meant to empower you. Um, and Empowerment. I think that's that you're thing. exactly right. You're exactly right. Well, uh, we're, getting, we're getting over an hour and I don't want to keep you too long. I got, I got one or two uh, more for you. And, um, okay, cool. Um, just so to people listening that are resonating they wake up tomorrow, what's the first thing they do? Where do they start? What do you recommend for somebody starting this change to a plant-based diet? Yeah, well, the first thing I would say is get a buddy. Okay, mm -hmm. get a friend or a family member um, to take the challenge with you. There's so many awesome resources out there. I mean, Netflix is a great place to start, okay? If you, if you don't share my enthusiasm for sitting down and reading lengthy medical journals and picking out the uh, actionable information and turning it into um, easy-to-use advice and beautiful recipes, go and get on Netflix and maybe watch What the Health or Cowspiracy or Forks Over Knives or any of those awesome documentaries. Um, game Changers. My goodness, how could I forget the Game Changers? And just, just immerse yourself in that for a day or two. Don't change anything yet. Just watch some of those documentaries. Maybe, you know, grab a copy of a book like any of Dr. Greger's books and read a little bit more and see which bits resonate with you. And then you and your buddy can support each other. And we know that when people are making a healthy dietary change, like any healthy diet and lifestyle change, having a friend along 
along with you is really, really important to offer you support. You can share recipes. You can cook food to each other. If you're allowed to visit each other's houses right now, you can pop around and share a meal, drop down some leftovers. I mean, I think that's, that's one of the top tips. The second tip I'd say, like I said earlier, is go and explore. There are literally millions of beautiful plant-based recipes free online. There are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds hundreds of beautiful plant-based cookbooks and guidebooks available. Um, I'm delighted to put one out there, uh, The Plant-Based Diet Revolution, but there are many others out there, so find one that appeals to you. And the other thing I would say, Pat, is remember, there is no such thing as perfection. There is no such thing as the perfect diet. There is no such thing as a perfect human or a perfect plate of food. And if you are making these changes, you don't need to be eating exactly like your favorite Instagrammer or your favorite plant-based author or sports star or any of the people on the Game Changers or me or Pat McCauley or anybody else. Find your own way and find meals that appeal to you and make you happy and make you feel healthier as you're on the road to better health. Because let's not forget that the number, what's, what's our goal here? A healthier and happier life. And if your food choices start to overwhelm you and stress you out, just take a step back for a little while, then come back to when you feel ready. I don't want people to, you know, make their lives miserable in the pursuit of some imagined perfection. If you were choosing beans and greens and whole grains and fruits and vegetables and nuts and seeds far more often than you used to, then that's an absolutely great thing. And the benefits of eating more plants, like I said earlier, should be available to everybody. I love it. I could go all day. <laughs> where, yeah, we uh, could do it a few hours. Yeah. <laughs> where, can, uh, where can people follow you? And for people in the US on the 18th, so that is a week from today, uh, best place to get it online is Amazon. And do you have a website for the book as well? Yep. Um, from May 18th, the book is available in the US. You should be able to get it pretty much anywhere that you'd like to buy your books usually. Amazon, obviously, but you can get your local bookstore to order a copy. It should be in Barnes & Noble. It, it, it should be everywhere. Okay, So anywhere where you can buy books, you should be able to pick up a copy. Um, you can learn more about the book at alandesmond.com forward slash revolution. Or if you want to hit me up on Instagram, just type Alan Desmond, A-L-A-N. D-E-S-M-O-N-D into Instagram and my profile at Dr. Alan Desmond will pop up and you can catch me there. Beautiful. Well, Alan, shout out to you for all the work you're doing. Um, you are able to say a lot of the things I wish I could say with more conviction uh, because you're obviously a, a seasoned doctor and have studied this extensively and um, it's a beautiful thing. I know the book will have a huge impact. I wish you all, all the best. And um, you're changing lives, man. You're getting people healthy. And I, I just give you a, a massive, massive shout out and uh, respect all you're doing. Oh, thanks, Pat. I really appreciate it. It was lovely to connect with you. And, you know, when international travel is a thing again, uh, maybe I'll catch you in Boston. We can hit the plant pub and, and get into a bit more detail. Yeah. A hundred percent. That'd be fantastic. Thank you, man. Sounds good, my friend. Yep, loved it.